1: ProPublica's Mary Huditz has spent the last few months thinking about what it means to be a collector. Because museums all over the country have collections that mean a lot to her. Collections of objects
0: and collections of people. Museums took our ancestors, they took many people's ancestors, but they took the remains of Native Americans in vast, you know, vast quantities Mary's a member of the Crow
1: Tribe of Montana. Growing up, she knew that museum curators and thrill-seekers alike had pillaged Native burial sites. Sometimes, bodies would be exposed and displayed.
0: In the 1800s, I think there was sort of a culture, based on everything I've read over the last year, of even amateurs going out and taking from grave sites and then, you know, going to the museum to see if, if they wanted it. Would you call them grave robbers? In some cases, yes. And thousands of
1: remains are still with these institutions. Yes. Mary can rattle off these figures. Harvard University houses the remains of more than 6,000 Native Americans. Illinois State Museum has 7,000. And the University of California, Berkeley,
0: has even more. Nearly 10,000. Some of these museums have just, just huge collections. It's, it's rattling to think that that's how they're treated. And they're treated that way because they're viewed as, or once were as specimens who were there for, for researchers.
1: But here's the thing. More than 30 years back, a law passed that was supposed to compel these institutions to repatriate what they'd taken Which got Mary wondering, why hasn't that happened? Today on the show, how some of America's most prestigious institutions have locked away tribal remains for decades, and why it is so hard for tribes to bring them home. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: The law that was supposed to ensure that Native people could reclaim their ancestors goes by an acronym, NAGPRA. That stands for Native American Graves and Repatriation Act. It passed in 1990. Over the last year, Mary Huditz and her team at ProPublica have used this law to catalog the number of remains housed all over the country— and ask tough questions about why they remain locked up in the first place. Theoretically, tribes should be able to call up institutions and simply ask for their people and artifacts to be returned. But in practice, this is not so simple. Tribes have to prove a connection to the dead, and museums have to accept that proof. Today, more than 100,000 native remains have yet to be returned, according to a ProPublica database. So I asked Mary Huditz to focus on just one of these institutions, UC Berkeley. Mary says Berkeley's extensive collection is a remnant of a 19th century bone collecting craze, when the university tried to dig up as many remains as it could.
0: When Berkeley was founded, I want to say in the late 1860s, soon after that they had started to collect from Native American grave sites. Berkeley was this new institution on the West Coast and it wanted to be great. It wanted to be like Harvard, which already had a museum, was already collecting, that somehow to be a great institution in this country, a great great, university was, was to collect from Native American graves and just amass them and make them available for research.
1: You write that there were so many remains that they were eventually stored in a basement beneath a Berkeley swimming pool, and that anthropology professors used these remains in their skeletal anatomy classes. In 1990, when this law, NAGPRA, passed, it encouraged institutions like Berkeley to return native remains to recognized tribes. Did it actually change how the institution used the
0: remains it had? No. I mean, so the thing about NAGPRA is that it's been good because it got new institutions to report what they had. It's sort of forced conversations where they may not have happened before between tribes and institutions. There are loopholes in NAGPRA, though. One of them is this: what folks... Consider now a loophole, which is the culturally identifiable designation.
1: Remains are deemed culturally unidentifiable when researchers can't establish a link to a specific tribe. It's a loophole because institutions are the ones doing this research. They set the burden of proof, and they're usually the ones to make the final call. Berkeley has designated
0: the vast majority of its collection as culturally unidentifiable. So we don't know where these came from. So the thing is, is that they may very well know exactly where they came from, the very point, geographically. But they're saying, we just can't say which tribe to give these back to.
1: And so we're stuck and we need to keep them.
0: Yes. And when they keep them, um, there's there's more to the loophole. It's that um, for the last 30 years, if it remains were designated or items as culturally unidentifiable, then an institution actually could continue to use them for research and also for teaching.
1: Yeah, you've pointed out one problem with this law Nagpra is that it puts the onus on tribes to do the work. Like they have to go to these institutions and figure out who among our people may be here and and make the case that we want these remains back. This is important to us. This may take years, involve travel, involve lawyers. And you you talk about how the institutions have fought this from the very beginning. Like you tracked down a hearing from one of the very first tribal challenges to Berkeley's collection of skeletal remains. This is like 1993. Can you explain what happened when representatives from the indigenous community had to talk one-on-one with people from Berkeley and try to come to some kind of agreement.
0: Yeah. So this conflict was the very first conflict under NAGPRA, formal conflict or dispute. And a pair of ancestors repatriated to them from Berkeley. So they're clearly running up against resistance. I believe they had gone to Berkeley to view the collection and Berkeley did not Want to, what they say, NAGPRA, affiliate these remains with Native Hawaiians or say that they were the ancestors of Native Hawaiians. So they took their dispute for the very first time before this federal review committee, and it was a really bitter hearing.
1: One of the speakers at this hearing was a famous professor named Tim White, who was in charge of the skeletal remains. Tim White likened the Native remains to the texts in Berkeley's library saying that researchers used them more or less like any other academic materials. One of the tribal leaders Mary spoke with vividly remembers how he felt in that moment when he heard
0: someone compare
1: his ancestors to books on a shelf.
0: He was just so upset in that moment, and he could tell the room understood that others, you know, on the Federal Review Committee could understand the gravity of this moment. And he just pounded his fists on the table and he said, "Our our ancestors are not books. You know, we are not descended from books. It was offensive to him that they could be viewed in that way."
1: Yeah. When you looked into Berkeley's relationship with the tribal community with the collection of skeletal remains, the name Tim White came up again and again, and he's a very noted anthropologist, but he fought very hard to continue teaching with Native remains. He seemed to treat the university's collection as his personal collection, like would just house it in his office and resisted any attempts to have the relationship be more formal. Even his colleagues seemed to take real issue with him and how he he treated these bones, it, it makes me wonder, like, how do you think he was able to do that for so long?
0: So Tim White will dispute that he ever viewed the collection as his own. He kind of notes that it, he was able to obtain remains and you know have them in his lab through loans from the campus's museum. But he was able to teach with remains, keep them in his lab, in part because of sort of this culturally identifiable loophole I mentioned earlier, he notes that he always followed the law. And indeed, the law allows professors still to teach with remains that have not been affiliated with a tribe.
1: For many indigenous people, Tim White has come to embody the way major institutions deal with native remains. Mary says you can see why he's become so controversial even if you look at successful repatriations,
0: like when the Chumash tribe approached Berkeley a few years back. So with UC Berkeley, they wanted to repatriate 1,400 of their ancestors. This is the largest repatriation Berkeley has ever done. And they engaged in a very persistent approach to asking to view the ancestors, I believe, and really to repatriate them and bring them home. They were going to hearings. They were going to state legislative hearings to say that, um, to sort of air grievances. They were telling the university they wanted this repatriation to happen. And so things finally worked out and they were able to, you know, they made their claim to their ancestors and the repatriation happened in 2018. But was that the end of the story? With the Chumash, no. It was not the end of the story. Two years later, they learned um, that not all of them were returned. So out of 1400, the remains of six ancestors were still at Berkeley University in the lab of Professor Tim White, who we discussed earlier. And uh, he says it happened you know, by mistake that they got into his lab and were moved across campus. And it all happened unknowingly. And so he, he did follow the policy and he reported what he had and it was discovered that six of the individuals in his lab um, were Chumash ancestors that should have been repatriated to the tribe in 2018, that the tribe believed had been sent home with them for repatriation and reburial. And it is six out of 1400, but I think among native people, it's just as we live today, like every, you know, every person matters. And so it was painful to know that what had happened was incomplete. It's been now more than two years since that discovery happened. It's actually been exactly two years since they learned that their ancestors um, had not been returned to them as they told they had been. In their quest for answers, they've also learned that Berkeley has yet even more missing Chumash ancestors. And this kind of goes to perhaps the vastness of Berkeley's collection and and that out of the many thousands of ancestral remains that they hold, some are just cannot be found. You ended up reporting on a lot of problems at Berkeley.
1: One thing I noted, though, is that you said that the Anthropological Museum there is currently closed because they're sorting through remains to repatriate them, possibly. So does that mean Berkeley is finally confronting its collection and the implications of it
0: head on? Yeah, Berkeley is is finally being forced to confront it in a way that really hadn't been before. So it closed its museum and it is issuing a lot of apologies I think tribes feel... I have not talked to every tribe in California. Um, Much of its collection comes from California. Uh, But the tribes I have spoken to, um, I haven't spoken to one that really believes that there is a change, a sea change happening there in the way that, you know, the administration might describe. I think that results from decades of mistrust and, you know, really painful episodes. And so they want to see the action. After the break,
1: what would action to fix this system look like? In some ways, what's happened at UC Berkeley shows everything wrong with NAGPRA, that repatriation law. It puts the onus on tribes to do the research, yet it gives institutions outsized power over the final repatriation decisions. It also makes it easy for figures like Tim White to stall the process. That being said, Berkeley has repatriated thousands of remains since NAGPRA passed Likewise, the Field Museum in Chicago, the University of Colorado, and many other institutions have made steady progress when it comes to repatriation, even if tribes and activists think that progress is way too slow. So I asked Mary Huditz what it looks like when this law, NAGPRA, actually works as
0: intended. She said it can actually be very simple. Tribes say it works well when an institution um, does not immediately dismiss their uh, stories about who they are and you know stories and tribes can be very foundational i use the word story but it's it's a history of who they are and it's been passed down over many many years and um sometimes tribes say that an institution will discount that history which then means sort of discounting the tribe's claim to who their ancestors are they'll say where is your proof they have to say that we have seen instances where an institution will just say we're not accepting this evidence and they don't even they don't have to say why because they're the final arbiters yes you know even that committee that the native hawaiian organization went before in 1993 is really limited in telling a university what it should do it can offer a recommendation but the university will make the decision on what actually happens. Hmm.
1: I want to talk about what happens now, because it does seem like we're at a turning point. And I say that because of your reporting, which is so thorough. But then also it's clear from your reporting how Indigenous people are empowered. We have our first Indigenous woman, Deb Holland, in charge of the Department of the Interior. How is that impacting the conversation about how to fix this law, NAGPRA, and how institutions respond when Native
0: people reach out? Oh, it's having an immense impact on this issue. The Interior Department under Dead Holland is proposing new regulations and on speeding up the process of repatriation. She wants it to happen in three years, right? All of the remains to be repatriated. Yes, I think the clock on that would start maybe like a year or so from now if these regulations um, are approved as is. Is that even possible? Some people you spoke to said it would take 70 years. In some ways, I think it could be possible. I'll say, I think there's kind of two answers here. On the one hand, a lot of sources tell us it's just a matter of institutional will for an institution to say we are. We are affiliating these remains to tribes. We are going to repatriate them. It's also um, possible to remember that you can repatriate sort of on paper. Like you're transferring legal control to a tribe, but maybe a tribe needs the time to decide what to do, how they want the burial to go. And that can take time. So I guess if you want to speed up the process, you need to resource it too. Yep, you do. And these institutions have. Massive budgets, some a billion dollars or more. And even these institutions will sort of cite how expensive the process is, how complicated it is. But it's, you could add more federal funding, but I think it's a question of um, priorities. Are you optimistic about the next few years
1: when it comes to repatriation and the impact of your reporting?
0: I could see some movement happening. And the only that does reason- not sound like optimism. Well, I was going to say the reason that it could happen is this is a time when the issue is getting some attention. And the the main answer to your question, I feel, is that in the last five years, we've heard institutions start to to apologize and acknowledge that their collection, like the way they acquired what they have was unethical. Their collecting practices were unethical. That's a shift. And I guess the question is what they do now. Yes. So there are certainly apologies. That's a change in tone. But what's next? Will we see repatriation rates change? Yeah. Will we see museums devote the resources needed to this work? Mary, I'm super grateful for your
1: time and your reporting. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Mary Huditz is a reporter for ProPublica. She focuses on tribal issues in the Southwest. And that's our show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to support us is to join our membership program, Slate Plus. You can go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus and find out all you need to know. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Paige Osborne, Madeline Ducharme, and Anna Phillips. We are getting a ton of support right now from Jared Downing and Laura Spencer. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. You can go track me down on Twitter. Say hello. I'm at Mary's desk. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you back here tomorrow.